Hi, this is Meg Wallitzer. I love hosting Selected Shorts. It's so wonderful to bring great stories read by brilliant performers into your home. What a gift to be able to transport you with beautiful words to different times and places, even for a little while. There's something magical about the communal experience of Selected Shorts. A whole new world comes alive between the storyteller and the audience. And for a little while, we're all together, going on a journey your ears can take you on that your eyes can't. So I know why I love it. You have your own reasons, no doubt. These days, it feels like our brains are like internet browsers with too many tabs open. It's hard to focus. If you're listening, it means you relish the chance to slow things down and be in the moment, to hear one voice telling one story that's bound to make you laugh or cry or both. Whatever keeps you coming back to shorts, I hope you'll help us keep the show healthy and thriving with a tax-deductible donation. So please visit SelectedShorts.org and make a donation today. And thank you. So maybe your second best, a replacement brought in at the last minute to fill in for the one that people really want. It's fine, really. Quarterbacks, Broadway stars, and beloved teachers all have people ready to step in when they can't make it. On this episode of Selected Shorts, writers help us stand out when we stand in. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Don't go away. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. When we want something, we want the original, the genuine article, the authentic and undisputed version everything else is based on. Why would we accept a replacement unless it was absolutely necessary? Well, turns out there are some good reasons why a stand-in might bring us as much, if not more, happiness than the original. And in today's stories, we'll explore a few of these reasons. In one piece, a young man assumes a new identity to pursue his love interest— In another, an author learns to speak for the dead at a cost. And in a third, a robot child and its human family learn about love all at once. Audiences get upset when they go to a show and learn that the star is out sick and that the leading role will be played by Joe or Josephine Schmo. They may grumble about it up in the mezzanine, but no doubt the understudy is backstage texting the extended Schmo family and secretly thanking the god of food poisoning. Our first story, A Happy Dream, comes from writer Steve Almond. Almond is a Pushcart Prize-winning fiction writer with titles such as All the Secrets of the World, and he's written nonfiction including the book Against Football, a manifesto about why America ought to give up the sport. This short story contains a kind of sitcom premise. A moment of mistaken identity kicks off a romantic adventure. But Almond's characters charm us from start to finish. Performing the story is the very funny Phil Lamar. He's a voiceover actor known for roles in animated shows such as Futurama, as well as playing Sherlock Holmes in the podcast Moriarty, The Devil's Game. Now here he is performing Steve Amon's story, A Happy Dream. Henry was out in front of the brattle waiting for his sister Marla, who was late on the verge of standing him up, actually, when he saw a woman zip across the street on a 10-speed bike. This was crazy. It was early February. The roads were still layered with dirty snow. 
The woman bonked into a parking meter, locked the bike, pulled her hat off, and there was her hair. A cascade of the stuff. She looked around briskly and made straight for Henry. You must be Michael, she said. I'm Kate. This was a pretty woman. Not beautiful, not gorgeous. But then, Henry was all done with gorgeous. He'd just been dumped by a gorgeous woman. Or, well, a year ago he'd been dumped. And anyway, this woman, this pretty Kate, with her hair and her big lovely nose, she was looking into his eyes expectantly. And he didn't even want to see Marla, that was the truth, with her terrible social worker pity face and her cheery advice, you need to get out there more, give yourself a chance, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Henry smiled shyly. Call me Mike, he said. <laughs> After the movie, they went to a bar. Kate ordered a gimlet. What, what's a gimlet, Henry said. I don't know. I just like saying gimlet. Gimlet, gimlet, gimlet. She swept her hair into a bun. So anyway, Lori told me you're a firefighter. What's that like, Mike? Henry paused and looked around and swallowed. Oh, he said, you know, hot. Awfully hot. <laughs> Kate laughed. She had a terrific laugh, loud and a little throaty. The drinks arrived, and Henry gulped at his. The thing is, he said, there's really not as much action as you might think. Mostly it's just sitting around the station. Folks are pretty good about fire safety these days. Kate looked a little disappointed. Uh, that, that's not to say there haven't been some close calls, he said. What's the most dangerous fire you ever fought? The most dangerous fire I've ever fought, huh? Let me think about that one. Henry was pretty sure he was going to hell. <laughs> On the other hand, he felt glorious. Alive in a way he hadn't for months. I guess, well, a couple of years ago, there was this four alarm over at Haviland Candy. They were working double shifts for Valentine's and someone must have fallen asleep. These big copper vats of chocolate exploding all over the place and flames licking at the marshmallows. Corn syrup is highly flammable, you know. My God! Kate was running her swizzle stick along the cleft in her chin. Were you okay? A touch of smoke inhalation, no big deal. But enough about me. Tell me what you do. So now Henry was following Kate home. Kate, who was 27 years old and performed improv sketch comedy and worked as a chimney sweep to pay the bills. <laughs> she was on her bike and she rode like an absolute maniac. Henry had trouble keeping up with her and he was in a car. <laughs> and yet he was utterly captivated by her recklessness the way she darted in and out of traffic, flung herself around corners, her tires sending up strings of slush. Henry wished that Marla could see him now. A make-believe firefighter running red lights in pursuit of a sexy, slightly soused chimney sweep. Marla, who was always saying how risk-averse he was. Not risk-averse, he told her. Anti-heartbreak. There's a difference. Then Kate went down. Hard under the wheels of a passing bus. 
It happened so quickly, Henry didn't even have time to react. Though, oddly, he was sort of reacting even as he thought this. Mourning her death and the life together they had missed. The long, searching conversations, and maybe even more than that, the absolutely superb sex they might someday have had. And he even began to cry a little, there in his unheated Honda, as he thought about the cute little babies, two or three of them at least, all with her nose, that they would never raise. But no, that wasn't it. She'd merely slipped past the bus. She was still alive, alive, and wheeling onto a side street. He pulled up behind her and leapt out of the car. I thought you'd been, that bus. She was under the street lamp, flush, panting a little, ravishing. I just like to let drivers know who's boss. Kate grinned. Besides, you're a firefighter, right? You know all that paramedic stuff, mouth to mouth. A light snow drifted down and fell on her hair, and he wanted to tell her right then, no, he wasn't a firefighter. He was a sous chef, a lonely, risk-averse sous chef. But desire was surging through him now, and the heart needed these things, these moments of grand drama. He thought, I will die if I don't kiss her. He leaned in and kissed her lightly. His fingertips touched her cheek. She tasted of gimlet, lime juice, and the sharp bite of gin. And her eyes were still closed when she pulled away, as if she were in the midst of a happy dream. I usually hate blind dates, she whispered. But this was really, you know. And then she kissed him again, harder. And her belly came against his. And now Henry was fairly certain he was going to hell. What's the matter, she said. Is it, I mean, Lori told me about your wife. Is that what it is, Mike? Are you still grieving? Henry sighed. <laughs> Elaborately and through his nose. He was really very unhappy. Listen, Kate, I'm not, I'm not the guy you were supposed to meet, this Mike guy. I'm just... How to explain this? I'm just a guy who saw you and, you know, you look so brave and pretty. Wow, what a jerk. I'm sorry. He began to consider how he would react if she slapped his face. Would he cry? Was she a good slapper? Kate stood there, swaying in the lamplight. I know, she said finally. What? I know. Marla told me. Marla? What do you mean Marla told you? But now Henry could see the situation. His sister had recruited this woman, or God, maybe even hired her. Oh, this was pathetic. Truly pathetic. Henry began clubbing himself on the head. <laughs> Did she pay you? <laughs> Please tell me she didn't pay you. Kate seemed to be trying not to laugh. Please stop hitting yourself, she said, and grabbed his arm. You're not really a chimney sweep, are you? Henry said quietly. <laughs> Bike messenger, actually. Do you think I'm loathsome and disgusting? Kate looked at him again, her eyes green and quite serious. 
No. I like a man who can think on his feet. Let's try another kiss. I mean it, Mike. I've never kissed a real firefighter. That was Phil Lamar reading A Happy Dream by Steve Almond. That twist is fun, no? It's nice to imagine someone selecting a romantic prospect for you, a person just magnetic and irrepressible enough to make you take a risk to get their attention. And it's even more delightful to imagine that the romantic prospect is in on it. Twists are tough. As a writer, you could pull an O. Henry. You bought me a locket to put a piece of my hair in, but I cut off my hair to buy you a pocket watch. Or you could pull a classic sixth-grade creative writing maneuver like I used to do and cleverly end all your stories like this. Then I woke up. It was all a dream. Next up, a piece by Rivers Solomon. Solomon is the author of smart speculative fiction titles, including The Deep. Their influences include not just leaders in the genre, like Ursula K. Le Guin and Octavia Butler, but Zora Neale Hurston and Doris Lessing, too. Solomon's story will be read by actor T.L. Thompson, who has quite the resume. They owned their own painting company, played in the queer punk band Inner Princess, and now are featured in television series including 4400. The story itself is an imagined preface to a book that doesn't exist, and its author is a literal ghostwriter. They channel the stories of the dead. I just love stories within stories, that literary Russian nesting doll thing. A quick heads up. There are footnotes in the text. To ensure smooth transitions, Thompson presents these footnotes as authorial asides. So while you'll hear Thompson's tone of voice change, you won't hear the numbers that accompany each footnote on the page. Now, T.L. Thompson reads River Solomon's story, which is titled A Brief Note on the Translation of Winter Women, written by the Collective Dead, translated by Amal Ruth. Translator's note. When people discover that I speak haint or the language of the dead, it hurt me to type this. Why use so many words when fewer and better will do? Yet I know that because this movement led by white linguists and academics has become so successful and, and it has become the widely accepted term, I use haint, dead speak, and ghost, as the trailblazing first translators did. As the new reformists call it, a group I do not count myself of, for they seem to be obsessed with respectability, wishing to scrub the language clean of all associations with anything sinister or, dare I say, ghostly, an incredible farce when you consider the pioneer of dead speak wasn't a scholar in the traditional sense, but a black root worker. They assume my prowess with the hermetic tongue is the result of my kinship with death. I had this demonstrated for me recently when a group of strangers and I found ourselves trapped together on an elevator between floors. The panic rising among my seven fellows provoked me to speak, a misstep I blame on my being autistic, for I am always talking when everyone would prefer me to stay quiet. The precise opposite phenomenon of my childhood, when I was nonverbal and everyone wished I would speak. 
An abrupt stop between floors is dead speak for dying, I informed everyone in the elevator. Note the stopped up toilets, the stubborn vending machines, and the flickering lights on floor eight. We're being told that the tree that stands outside is in the early stages of oak wilt and will die in four years. My announcement did not allay anyone's worry. Despite the attempts of the new reformists to doll up Haint's image, they've never been able to eliminate the heady black taint of hoodoo from the tongue. My seven fellows looked at me fearfully, their bags pressed firmly to their bodies. They believed it was me who was dead, the ghost. One said, sir, misgendering me. This is the land of the living. We don't speak that nonsense here. We're, he said, gesturing to everyone in the elevator but me, alive. He likely saw that news report linking haint to zombies, now famously debunked but still considered gospel by the right. I'm sure he thought I was a revenant spoken back to life with dead speak, giving orders to kill by my Haitian voodoo priestess progenitor or some such nonsense. I suppose in the matter of haint, there is no denying that immersion is synonymous with death. This was certainly the case for the pioneering translator Lux Wade. In her early 20s, Wade hired herself out as a root worker. She was living in her van, barely making enough to afford gas and food. Still, when a young man came to her for aid but couldn't afford to pay, she said yes, moved by the depths of his desperation. She described him as having the look of someone with a toe dipped into the grave. This man, Kuvan Stokely, needed help with a one-bedroom bungalow he'd inherited from his grandma. Wade had dealt with hauntings before, quite pernicious ones, but Stokely's house was a Goliath that would not be sated, no matter what spells and cleansing rituals she performed. Well, unable to turn down the challenge, she stayed with Stokely in this house for a year, as the walls around them rotted away. The rot spread to Stokely and then to Wade herself. Soft, black patches blighted their skin, like bruises on an apple. When Stokely died, Wade could have abandoned the property, but it was her client's last words that told her not to abandon this haunting. It was a very good story, though I'm not sure it was worth all this. What story? Wade asked. But Stokely was gone. She remained in that house for three more years, squatting, derelict and abandoned. The house was not high on the bank's priority list, withering. But by the end of her time there, she had an inkling of what Stokely had meant, a sense, an understanding. The hauntings were not mere torments. They were a language with a grammar. Growing up in the house, immersed in it, Stokely had internalized the rules of the tongue during his youth without realizing it. Thus began what would become 60 years of deep research. The only way to learn the language fluently was to spend time among the world's hauntings. 
Wade uncovered a rich, complex language in her travels. Dialects varied based on a haunting's locations, a house, a building, a ship, a car. Wade appreciated the creolized aspect of the language, the way it bloomed like dandelion, where and whenever it was. In time, she decided to collaborate with a linguist, which is where her eventual wife, Dr. Maliki Osser, entered the picture. Together, after 15 years, they composed the first grammar. Though they are now dead, the legacy of their work remains. They were my teachers. And as the existence of dead speak shows us, no one is ever really gone. Their stories are in me. Though Wade and Osser eventually died in the field, in old age, succumbing to the same blight that plagued Wade in that first bungalow, I know they will soon be telling tales. Winter Women is an epic written collectively by the dead. I've done my best to maintain the rhythms, poetry, idioms, and cadences of Haint, but as you can imagine, it is tricky work. I did not die or come close to death to attain the knowledge necessary for undertaking this translation, including the very house that killed the young man who, in his own way, was the key for discovery of dead speak by the living. Winter Women is the epic that Ku Von Stokely's bungalow orated to him. I hope that, like him, you will find it a very good story, if not necessarily worth the price of death. That was T.L. Thompson performing River Solomon's story titled, hold on, here we go, A Brief Note on the Translation of Winter Women Written by the Collective Dead, translated by Amal Ruth. How's that for breath control? I'm not quite ready for Gilbert and Sullivan, but maybe Billy Joel's word-packed, We Didn't Start the Fire. Listen, today is all about stand-ins, so if you're listening, Billy, and you need a break, invite me to Madison Square Garden one of these months, and we'll see what happens. Maybe the people in the cheap seats won't even notice. The both of us are from Long Island. After their reading of the Solomon story, we spoke with T.L. Thompson about the story and their performance. It's kind of a scary story when you get into it. You find out that this person is writing about this made-up language, this language of the dead, and a couple of quips about linguistics and academics and all this kind of thing, and then you realize that the person that's been telling this story is telling the story to the audience who is dead. That was actor T.L. Thompson backstage at Symphony Space. Let's take a quick break. When we return, a robot teaches its family about love. It's not by author Isaac Asimov, the creator of the famed Three Laws of Robotics, but I bet he would have loved it. I'm Meg Wallitzer, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide.
Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. In this episode, stories about people, places, or things who stand in for other people, places, or things. Our final story, Saying Goodbye to Yang, is by Alexander Weinstein. He is also the author of the collections Children of the New World and Universal Love. This piece about machines and the humans who grow to love them was also adapted into the film After Yang. Performing the story is Tony Hale. He's known for a number of indelible comic roles in series including Arrested Development and Veep, and an increasing number of voiceovers in films such as Toy Story 4. Now here's Tony Hale reading Alexander Weinstein's Saying Goodbye to Yang. We're sitting around the table eating Cheerios, my wife sipping tea, Mika playing with her spoon, me suggesting apple picking over the weekend, when Yang slams his head into a cereal bowl. It's a sudden mechanical movement and it splashes cereal and milk all over the table. Yang rises, looking as though nothing odd just occurred, and then he slams his face into the bowl again. Mika thinks this is hysterical. She starts mimicking Yang, bending over to dunk her own face in the milk. But Kira's pulling her away from the table and whisking her out of the kitchen so I can take care of Yang. At times like these, I am not the most clear-headed. I stand in my kitchen, my chair knocked over behind me at a total loss. Shut him down, call the company, shut him down, call the company. By now the bowl is empty, milk dripping off the table, Cheerios all over the goddamn place. And Yang has a red ring on his forehead from where his face has been striking the bowl. A bit of skin has pulled away from his skull over his left eyelid. I decide I need to shut him down. The company can walk me through the reboot. I get behind Yang and I untuck his shirt from his pants as he jerks forward. Then I push the release button on his back panel. The thing's screwed shut and won't pop open. Kira! I say loudly, turning toward the doorway to the living room. No answer, just the sound of Mika upstairs crying to see her brother, and the concussive thuds of Yang hitting his head against the table. Kira! What is it? She yells back. Thud! I need a Phillips head! What? Thud! A screwdriver! I can't get it. Mika's having a tantrum. Thud! Great, thanks. Kira and I are not usually like this. We're a good couple, communicative, caring, but moments of crisis bring out the worst in us. The skin above Yang's left eye has completely split, revealing the white membrane beneath. There's no time for me to run to the basement from my toolbox. I grab a butter knife from the table and I attempt to use the tip as a screwdriver. The edge, however, is too wide, completely useless against the small metal cross of the screw, so I jam the knife into the back panel and pull hard. There's a cracking noise, and a piece of flesh-colored bioplastic skids across the linoleum as I flip open Yang's panel. I push the power button and wait for the dim blue light to shut off. With alarming stillness, Yang sits upright in his chair, as though something is amiss, and cocks his head toward the window, Outside, a cardinal takes off from the branch where it was sitting. Then, with an internal sigh, Yang slumps forward, chin dropping to his chest. The illumination beneath his skin extinguishes, giving his features a sickly ashen hue. I hear Kira coming down the stairs with Mika. Is Yang okay? 
No, 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 don't come in here. Mika wants to see her brother. Stay out of the kitchen. Yang's not doing well. The kitchen wall echoes with the muffled footsteps of my wife and daughter returning upstairs. Fuck, I say under my breath. Not doing well? Yang's a piece of crap and I just destroyed his back panel. God knows how much those cost. I get out my cell and call Brothers and Sisters Incorporated for help. When we adopted Mika three years ago, it seemed like the progressive thing to do. We considered it our one small strike against cloning. Kira and I are both white, middle class, and have lived an easy and privileged life. We figured it was time to give something back to the world. It was Kira who suggested she be Chinese. The earthquake had left thousands of orphans in its wake, and Mika was among them. It was hard not to agree. My main concern, when I voiced Akira privately and quite vocally to the adoption agency during our interview, was the cultural differences. The most I knew about China came from the photos and learned Chinese translations on the placemats at Golden Dragon. The adoption agency suggested purchasing Yang. He's a big brother, babysitter, and storehouse of cultural knowledge all in one, the woman explained. She handed us a colorful pamphlet, China, it announced in red dragon-shaped letters, and said we should consider. We considered. Kira was putting in 40 hours a week at Crate and Barrel, and I was still managing double shifts at Whole Foods. It was true, we were going to need someone to take care of Mika. And there was no way we were going to use some clone from the neighborhood. Kira and I weren't egocentric enough to consider ourselves worth replicating, nor did we want our neighbor's perfect kids making our daughter feel insecure. In addition, Yang came with a breadth of cultural knowledge that Kira and I could never match. He was programmed with grades K through college and had an in-depth understanding of national Chinese holidays like flag raising ceremonies and ghost festivals. He knew about mooncakes and sky lanterns. For 200 more, we could upgrade to a model that would teach Mika Tai Chi and acupuncture when she got older. I thought about it. Hey, I could learn Mandarin, I said as we lay in bed that night. Come on, Kira said. There's no fucking way that's happening. So I squeezed her hand and said, okay, it'll be two kids then. He came to us fully programmed. There wasn't a baseball game, pizza slice, bicycle ride, or movie that I could introduce him to. Early on, I attempted such outings to create a sense of companionship, as though Yang were a foreign exchange student in our home. I took him to see the Tigers play in Comerica Park. He sat and ate peanuts with me, and when he saw me cheer, he followed suit and put his hands in the air. But there was no sense that he was enjoying the experience. Ultimately, these attempts at camaraderie, from visiting haunted houses to tossing a football around the backyard, they felt awkward, as though Yang were humoring me. And so after a couple months, I gave up. He lived with us, ate food, privately dumped his stomach canister, brushed his teeth, read Mika goodnight stories, and went to sleep when we shut off the lights. All the same, he was an important addition to our lives. You could always count on him to keep conversation going with some fact about China that none of us knew. I remember driving with him listening to World Drum on NPR when he sat from the back seat. This song utilizes the zhen, an ancient Chinese instrument organized around minor third intervals. Other times he'd tell us fun facts, 
Like one afternoon when we'd all gotten ice cream at Old World Creamery, he turned to Meek and said, did you know ice cream was invented in China over 4,000 years ago? His delivery of this info was a bit mechanical, a linguistic trait we attempted to keep Mika from adopting. There was a lack of passion to his statements as though he wasn't interested in the facts. But Kira and I understood this to be the result of his being an early model. And when one considered the moments when he'd turn to Mika and say, I love you, little sister, there was no way to deny what an integral part of our family he was. 20 minutes of hold time later, I'm informed that Brothers and Sisters Incorporated isn't going to replace Yang. My warranty ran out eight months ago, which means I've got a broken Yang, and if I want telephone technical support, it's going to cost me $30 a minute now that I'm post-warranty. I hang up. Yang is still slumped with his chin on his chest. I go over and push the power button on his back, hoping all he needed was to be restarted. Nothing. There's no blue light, no sound of his body warming up. Shit, I think. There goes $8,000. <laughs> Can we come down yet? Kira yells. Hold on, hold on a minute. I pull Yang's chair out and place my arms around his waist. It's the first time I've actually embraced Yang, and the coldness of his skin surprises me. While he has lived with us almost as long as Mika, I don't think anyone besides her has ever hugged or kissed him. There have been times when, as a joke, one of us might nudge Yang with an elbow and say something humorous like, Haha, lighten up, Yang! But that's been the extent of our contact. I hold him close to me now, bracing my feet solidly beneath my body, and I lift. Ooh, he is heavier than I imagined. His weight that of an 18-year-old boy he's designed to be. I hoist him onto my shoulder and I carry him through the living room out to the car. My neighbor George, he's next door raking leaves. George is a friendly enough guy, but completely unlike us. Both his children are clones, and he drives a hybrid with a bumper sticker that reads, if I wanted to go solar, I'd get a tan. <laughs> he looks up as I pop the trunk. Hey, is that Yang? He asks, leaning against his rake. Yeah, I say, and I lower Yang into the trunk. No shit, what's wrong with him? I don't know, one moment we're sitting around having breakfast, the next he's going haywire. I had to shut him down and he won't start up again. Jeez, you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I say instinctively, though as I answer I realize that I'm not. My legs feel wobbly and the sky above us seems thinner as though there's less air. Still, I'm glad I answered as I did. A man who paints his face for Super Bowl games isn't the type of guy to open your heart to. You got a technician? George asks. Uh, actually, no, I was going to take him over to Quick Fix and see, uh-uh, don't take him there. I got a good technician. Took Tiger there when he wouldn't fetch. The guy's in Kalamazoo and it's worth the drive. George takes a card from his wallet. He'll check Yang out and fix him for a third of what those guys at QFix will charge you. Tell Russ I sent you. All right. Russ Goodman's tech repair shop is located two miles off the highway amid a row of industrial warehouses. The place is wedged between Mike's Mufflers Repair and a storefront called Stacy's Second Times, a cluttered thrift store displaying old rifles, iPods, and steel bear traps in its front window. Two men in caps and oil-stained plaid shirts are standing in front smoking cigarettes. As I park alongside the rusted mufflers and oil drums of Mike's, they eye my solar car like they would a flea-ridden dog. 
Uh, hi there. I'm looking for Russ Goodman, I say as I get out. I called earlier. The taller of the two, a middle-aged man with gray stubble and weathered skin, nods to the other guy to end their conversation. Yeah, that'd be me, he says. I'm ready to shake his hand, but he just takes a drag from his cigarette stub and says, let's see what you got. So I pop the trunk instead. Yang is lying alongside my jumper cables and windshield washing fluid with his legs folded beneath him. His head is twisted at an unnatural angle as though he were trying to turn his chin onto the other side of his shoulder. Russ stands next to me with his thick forearms and a smell of tobacco and lets out a sigh. You brought a Korean. He says this is a statement of fact. Russ is the type of person I've made a point to avoid in my life. A guy that probably has a we clone our own sticker on the back of his truck. Uh, well, he's Chinese, I say. Uh, same thing, Russ says. He looks up and gives the other man a shake of his head. Well, he says heavily, bring him inside. I'll see what's wrong with him. He shakes his head again as he walks away and enters his shop. Russ's shop consists of a main desk with a telephone and cash register across from which stands a table with a coffee maker, styrofoam cups, and powdered creamer. Two vinyl chairs sit by a table with magazines on it. The door to the workroom is open. Bring him back here, Russ says, carrying Yang over my shoulder. I follow him into the back room. The workspace is full of body parts, switchboards, cables, and tools. Along the wall hang disjointed arms, a couple of knees, legs of different sizes, and the head of a young girl, about 17, with long red hair. There's a work table cluttered with patches of skin and Pyrex box full of female hands. All the skin tones are Caucasian. In the middle of the room is an old massage table streaked with grease. Probably something Russ got from Stacy's seconds. Go ahead and lay him down there, Russ says. I place Yang down on his stomach and position his head in the small circular face rest at the top of the table. I don't, I don't know what happened to him, I say. He's always been fine when this morning he started malfunctioning. He was slamming his head onto the table over and over. Russ doesn't say anything. Ah, yeah, I'm wondering if it might, you know, be a problem with his hard drive. I say, feeling like an idiot. I've got no clue what's wrong with him. It's just something George mentioned I should check out. I should have gone the quick fix. The young techies with their polished manners always make me feel more at ease. Russ still hasn't spoken. He takes a mallet from the wall and a Phillips head screwdriver. Do you, uh, you think he's fixable? Well, we'll see. I don't work on imports. He says, meeting my eyes for the first time since I've arrived. But since you know George, I'm gonna open him up and take a look. Go ahead and take a seat out there. Uh, how long do you think it'll take? I won't know till I get him opened up, Russ says, wiping his hands on his jeans. Okay, I say meekly, and I leave Yang in Russ's hands. In the waiting room, I pour myself a cup of coffee and stir in some creamer. I set my cup on the coffee table and look through the magazines. There's Guns and Ammo, Tech Repair, Brothers and Sisters Digest. I put the magazines back down. The wall behind the desk is cluttered with photos of Russ and his kids, all of whom look exactly like him. And buried among these, a small sign with an American flag on it and the message, there ain't no yellow in the red, white, and blue. Ooh, I say instinctively, letting out an annoyed breath of air. 
This was the kind of crap that came out during the invasion of North Korea, back when the nation changed the color of its ribbons from yellow to blue. Ann Arbor is a progressive city, but even there, when Kira and I would go out with Yang and Mika in public, there were many who avoided eye contact. Stop the war activists weren't any different. It was that first Christmas as Kira, Yang, Mika, and I were at the airport being individually searched that I realized Chinese, Japanese, South Korean didn't matter anymore. They'd all become threats in the eyes of Americans. I decided to not sit here looking at Russ's racist propaganda and leave to check out the bear traps at Stacy's. Well, he's dead, Russ tells me. I can replace his insides, but more or less build him back from scratch, but that's going to cost you about as much as a used one. I stand looking at Yang, who's lying on the massage table with a tangle of red and green wires protruding from his back. Even though his skin has lost its vibrant color, it still looks soft, like when he first came to our home. Uh, isn't there anything you can do? Uh, his voice box and language system are still running. If you want, I'll take it out for you. He'll be able to talk to her. There just won't be any, you know, face attached. That'll cost you 60 bucks. Russ is wiping his hands on a rag, avoiding my eyes. I think of the sign hanging in the other room. <laughs> sure, I think I can just imagine the pleasure Russ will take in cutting up Yang. Nope, that's all right. I'll just take him home. What do I owe you? Ah, nothing, Russ says. I look up at him. You know George, he says, as an explanation. Besides, I can't fix him for you. On the ride home, I call Kira. She picks up on the second ring. Hello? Hey, it's me. My voice is ragged. Are you okay? Yeah, I say, then add, actually, no. What's the matter? How's Yang? I don't know. The tech I took him to say he's dead, but I don't believe him. The guy had a thing against Asians. I'm thinking about taking Yang over to Quick Fix. There's silence on the other end of the line. How's Mika? I ask. She keeps asking if Yang's okay. I put a movie on. Dead, she asks. Are you positive? No, I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not ready to give up on him yet. Look, I say glancing at the dash clock. It's only three. I'm going to suck it up and I'm going to take him to Quick Fix. I'm sure if I drop enough cash, you know, they can do something. What will we do if he's dead, Kira asks. I got to work on Monday. We'll figure it out, I say. Let's just wait until I get a second opinion. Kira tells me she loves me and I return my love and we hang up. It's as my Bluetooth goes dead that I feel the tears coming. I remember last fall when Kira was watching Mika, I was in the garage taking down the rake when from behind me, I heard Yang. He stood awkwardly in the doorway as though he was uncertain what to do while Mika was being taken care of. Can I help you, he asked. On that chilly late afternoon with the red and orange leaves falling around us, me in my vest and Yang in the black suit he came with, Yang and I quietly raked leaves into large piles on the flat earth until the backyard looked like a village of leaf huts. Then Yang held open the bag, I scooped the piles in, and we carried them to the curb. Do you, uh, you want a beer? I asked, wiping the sweat from my forehead. Okay, Yang said. I went inside and got two cold ones from the fridge, and we sat together on the splintering cedar of the back deck, watching the sun fall behind the trees and the first stars blink to life above us. Woo, can't beat a cold beer, I said, taking a swig. Yes, Yang said. He followed my lead and took a long drink. 
I could hear the liquids sloshing down into his stomach canister. This is what men do for the family, I said, gesturing with my beer to the leafless yard. Without realizing it, I had slipped into thinking of Yang as my son, imagining that one day he'd be raking leaves for his own wife and children. It occurred to me then that Yang's time with us was limited. Eventually, he'd be shut down and stored in the basement, an antique that Mika would have no use for when she had children of her own. At that moment, I wanted to put my arm around Yang. Instead, I said, I'm glad you came and worked with me. Me too, Yang said, and took another sip of his beer, looking exactly like me in the way he brought the bottle to his lips. The kid at Quick Fix makes me feel much more at ease than Russ. He's wearing a bright red vest with a clean white shirt under it and a name tag that reads, Hi, I'm Ronnie. The kid's probably not even 21. He's friendly, though, and when I tell him about Yang, he says, Whoa, that's no good, which is at least a little sympathetic. He tells me they're backed up for an hour, so much for Quick, I think. I put Yang on the counter and give my name. We'll page you once he's ready. Ronnie says. I spend the time wandering the store. They've got a demo station of championship boxing, so I put on the jacket and glasses, and I take on a guy named Vance who's playing in California. I can't figure out how to dodge or block, though, and when I throw out my hand, my guy on the screen just wipes his nose with his glove. Vance beats the shit out of me, so I put the glasses and vest back on the rack, and I go look at other equipment. I'm playing with one of the new thought phones when I hear my name paged over the loudspeaker. So I head back to the repair counter. Fried, the kid tells me. Honestly, it's probably good he bit it. He's a really outdated model. Ronnie is back and forth on his heels as though impatient to get on to his next job. Please, isn't there anything you can do, I ask? He's like my daughter's big brother. Ah. The language system is fully functional. If you want, I can, uh, I can separate the head for you. Uh, are you. Are you kidding? I'm not giving my daughter her brother's head to play with. <laughs> oh, the kid says. Well, uh, we could remove the voice box for you, and we can recycle the body and give you $20 off any digital camera. How much is all this going to cost? It's 95 for the checkup, 35 for disposal, and voice box removal will be another 150. You're probably looking at about 300 after labor and taxes. I think about taking him back to Russ, but there's no way. When he told me Yang was beyond saving, I gave him a look of distrust that anyone could read loud and clear. Uh, go ahead and remove the voice box, I say, but no, 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 no recycling. I want to keep the body. George is outside throwing a football around with his identical twins when I pull in. He raises his hands to his kids to stop them from throwing the ball, and he comes over the low hedge that separates our driveways. Hey, uh, how'd it go with Russ? He asks as I get out of the car. Not good. I tell him about Yang getting a second opinion, how I've got his voice box in the back seat, his body in a large quick fix bag in the trunk. I tell him all of this with as little emotion as possible. I mean, you know, what can you expect from electronics, I say, attempting to appear nonchalant. Man, uh, I'm really sorry for you, George says, his voice quieter than I've ever heard it. Yang was a good kid. I remember the day he came over to help Dana carry in the groceries. 
The kids still talk about that fortune-telling thing he showed them with the three coins. Yeah, I say, looking at the bushes, I can feel the tears starting again. Anyhow, it's no big deal. Don't let me keep you from your game. You know, we'll figure it out, which is a complete lie. I have no clue how we're going to figure anything out. We needed Yang, and there's no way we can afford another model. Hey, listen, uh, George says, if you guys need help, let us know. You know, if you need a day sitter or something, I can talk to Dana. I'm sure she'd be up for taking Mika. George reaches out across the hedge, his large hand coming straight at me. For a moment, I flash back to championship boxing and think he's going to hit me. Instead, he pats me on the shoulder. I'm really sorry, Jim, he says. That night, I lie with Meek in bed and read her goodnight moon. It's the first time I've read to her in months. The last time was when we visited Kira's folks and had to shut Yang down for the weekend. Mika's asleep by the time I reach the last page. I give her a kiss on her head and I turn out the lights. Kira's in bed reading. I guess I'm gonna start digging now, I say. Come here, she says, putting her book down. I cross the room and lie across our bed, my head on her belly. Do you miss him too, I ask? Mm-hmm, she says. She puts her hand on my head and runs her fingers through my hair. I think saying tomorrow is a good idea. Are you sure it's okay to have him buried out there? Yeah, there's no organic matter in him. The guys at Quick Fix dumped his stomach canister. I look up at our ceiling the way our lamp casts a circle of light and then a dark shadow. I don't know how we're going to make it without him. Shh, Kira strokes my hair. We'll figure it out. I spoke with Tina Matthews after you called me today. You remember her daughter, Lauren? Oh, the clone? Yeah, she's home this semester. College wasn't working for her. Tina said Lauren could watch Mika if we need her to. I turned my head to look at Kira. I thought we didn't want Mika raised by a clone. We're doing what we have to do. Besides, Lauren's a nice girl. She's got that glassy-eyed, apathetic look. She's exactly like her mother, I say. Kira doesn't say anything. She knows I'm being irrational and so do I. I sigh. I just really hope we could keep clones out of our lives. For how long your brother and Margaret are planning on cloning this summer? You're going to be an uncle soon enough. Yeah, I say quietly. Ever since I was handed Yang's voice box, time has slowed down. The light of the setting sun had stretched across the wood floors of our home for what seemed like an eternity. Sounds have become crisper as well as though, until now, I'd been living with earplugs. I think about the way Mika's eyelids fluttered as she slept the feel of George's hand against my arm. I sit up, turn toward Kira and kiss her. The softness of her lips makes me remember the first time we kissed. Kira squeezes my hand. You better start digging so I can comfort you tonight, she says. I smile and ease myself off the bed. Don't worry, Kira says, it'll be a good funeral. In the hallway on my way toward the staircase, the cracked door of Yang's room stops me. Instead of going down, I walk across the carpeting to his door, push it open, and flick open the light switch. There's his bed, perfectly made with the corners tucked in, a writing desk, a heavy oak dresser, and a closet full of black suits. On the wall is a poster of China that Brothers and Sisters Incorporated sent us, and a pennant for the Tigers game I took Yang to. There's little in the minimalism of his decor to remind me of him. There is, however, a baseball glove on the shelf by his bed. 
This was a present Yang bought for himself with the small allowance we provided for him. We were at Toys R Us when Yang placed the glove in the shopping cart. We didn't ask him about it, and he didn't mention why he was buying it. When he came home, he put it on the shelf near his tiger's pennant, and there it sat, untouched. Along the windowsill, Yang's collection of dead moths and butterflies look as though they're ready to take flight. He collected them from beneath our bug zapper during the summer and placed their powdery bodies by the window. I walk over and examine the collection. There's the great winged luna moth with its two mock eyes staring at me, the mosaic of a monarch's wing, and a collection of smaller nondescript brown and silvery gray moths. Kira once asked him about his insects. Yang's face illuminated momentarily. The lights beneath his cheeks burned extra brightly, and he said, They're very beautiful, don't you think? Then, as though suddenly embarrassed, he segued to a fun fact regarding the brush-footed butterfly of China. What arrests me, though, are the objects on his writing desk. Small matchboxes are stacked in a pile on the center of the table. The matchsticks spread across the expanse like tiny logs. In a corner is an orange-capped bottle of Elmer's that I recognize as the one from my toolbox. What was Yang up to? A log cabin? A city of small wooden men and women? Maybe this was Yang's attempt at art, one that, unlike the calligraphy he was programmed to know, was entirely his own. Tomorrow, I'll bag his suits, donate them to Goodwill, and throw out the brothers and sisters poster. But these matchboxes, the butterflies, and the baseball glove, I'll save. They're the only traces of the boy Yang might have been. The funeral goes well. It's a beautiful October day. The sky thin and blue, and the sun lights up the trees, bringing out the ochre and amber of the season. I imagine what the three of us must look like to the neighbors, a bunch of kooks bearing their electronic equipment like pagans. I don't care. When I think about Yang being ripped apart in a recycling plant or stuffing him into our plastic garbage can and setting him out with the trash, I know this is the right decision. Standing together as a family in the corner of our backyard, I say a couple of parting words. I thank Yang for all the joy he brought to our lives. Then Mika and Kira say goodbye. Mika begins to cry. And Kira and I bend down and put our arms around her. And we stay there, holding one another in the early morning sunlight. When it's all over, we go back inside to have breakfast. We're eating our cereal when the doorbell rings. I get up and I answer it. On our doorstep is a glass vase filled with orchids and white lilies. A small card is attached. I kneel down and I open it. I uh, didn't want to disturb you guys. Just wanted to give you these. We're all very sorry for your loss. George, Dana, and the twins. Amazing, I think. This from a guy who paints his face for Super Bowl games. Hey, look what we got, I say, carrying the flowers into the kitchen. They're from George. Ah, oh, they're beautiful, Kira says. Come, Mika, let's go put those in the living room by your brother's picture. Kira helps Mika out of her chair and we walk into the other room together. It was Kira's idea to put the voice box behind the photograph. The photo is a picture from our trip to China last summer. In it, Mika and Yang are playing at the gate of a park. Mika stands at the port holding the two large iron gates together. And from the other side, Yang looks through the hole of the gates at the camera. His head is slightly cocked, 
as though wondering who we all are. He has a placid, non-smile, non-frown, the expression we came to identify as Yang at his happiest. We can talk to him, I say to Mika as I place the flowers next to the photograph. Goodbye, Yang, Mika says. Goodbye, the voice box asks. But little sister, where are we going? Mika smiles at the sound of her big brother's voice and looks up at me for instructions. It's an awkward moment. I'm not about to tell Yang that the rest of him is buried in the backyard. Nowhere, I answer. We're all here together. There's a pause as though Yang's thinking about something. Then quietly he asks, did you know over two million workers died during the building of the Great Wall of China? Kira and I exchange a look regarding the odd coincidence of this fun fact, but neither of us say anything. Then Yang's voice starts up again. The Great Wall is over 10,000 li long. A li is a standardized Chinese unit of measurement that is equivalent to 1,640 feet. Wow, that's amazing, Kira says. And I stand next to her looking at the flowers George sent, acknowledging how little I truly know about this world. That was Saying Goodbye to Yang by Alexander Weinstein, performed by Tony Hale. The existential crisis that we see again and again in stories about robots and clones works particularly well when those figures take the form of children. After all, just like something created in a lab or on an assembly line, children, too, don't get much of a say about anything. And, of course, they didn't ask to be created. So there's a built-in poignancy. Yang is in a curious spot. He works hard to make others happy while somehow aware he's a replacement. Assuming robots have honor, there is honor in that. And the next time you're called on to fill the shoes of someone else, take the example of Yang and the other protagonists we've heard this hour. Be your best self and hope others come around to it. I'm Meg Wallitzer. If you missed any of today's show and to hear bonus interviews and much more, please check out our podcast. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our mix engineer for this episode was Jennifer Nolson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vita Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for New Initiatives. 
Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producers, circle, and members, who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.